Good evening, everyone. I'm Lyndon Crane, your host for Coffee with Craner, and welcome back to another episode. Today, I have Dwight Duncan joining me on the show. You may know him. He is a five-time MPP in the Windsor area. He's also a uh, former minister of finance, former minister of energy, was also a government house leader, and even deputy premier of Ontario. Um, now he's a senior strategic advisor at Macmillan. It's one of uh, the biggest uh, Bay Street law firms in Toronto area, and then also the chair of the board of directors at the Windsor Detroit Bridge Authority, or also known as the Gordie Howe International Bridge. He, aside from that, involved with many board roles, including uh, Pure Extracts Corp, Travelers Canada, and then also Macmillan Vantage Policy Group. And even this year was uh, executive in residence for the University of Windsor's Odette School of Business. Dwight, thanks for joining me tonight. Pleasure, Lyndon. So my favorite question every show, where in Windsor is your favorite place to get coffee? <laughs> um, the Beanery, I guess. I always enjoy that place. And, uh, you know, Tim Hortons is a regular uh, stopping place. And... Uh, Starbucks occasionally, but uh, yeah, so one local, a couple of big chains. Yes, it depends how you're feeling. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. So Dwight, you were uh, an MPP for, for 17 years, also a, a cabinet minister for a, about a decade. Uh, what lessons have you really learned since you left office that I guess you're applying into your, your many advising roles that you have today? Well, that's, that's a loaded question, a good one. Um, you know, the, you come to appreciate the complexity of society and, and the issues that society has to address, whether they're economic, social in nature, our relationships with other jurisdictions. So you're not quite as, I think you're probably, the lesson I would have learned is to be very thoughtful um, not to jump to conclusions, um, you know, what, what looks to you from the outside, something's very easy with easy answers, inevitably isn't. And there are complexities that make, that make it uh, challenging. And uh, I've used that experience and whatever wisdom I gained um, to um, uh apply it to, to the advice I give to various corporate clients, not-for-profits. I serve also as the national treasurer of the MS Society's Scientific Research Foundation. Um, and um, yeah, so I guess that that is probably the best way I can respond to your question. And have you been connected with the same individuals when you were in office? Um, yes, uh, I was the fellow who hired me at uh, Macmillan, uh, who's about to become the CEO of Macmillan. He, um, he and I first met, we were young students working in the David Peterson government back in the 1980s. Uh, he was working with then Education Minister Sean Conway, and I was working for another former local uh, minister, Bill Rye. Uh, we became friends then. He went on to become... Uh, uh, an MPP himself. He didn't stay very long at that. And then he became eventually chief of staff to uh, finance minister Paul Martin and then served also as his chief of staff, Paul Martin's chief of staff when he was prime minister. Wow. 
Very, very interesting. Among others, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm in contact with a number of my former colleagues. Uh, but the challenge, you know, when you when you're in the re in, when you're in the legislature, and I imagine the same when you sit in the House of Commons, probably even more so, is that your former colleagues are spread out all over the place. So it's hard. It's easier today than it would have been 20 or 30 years ago. But it's harder to stay in sort of close touch. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, definitely. So, I mean, you were finance minister during a, a very tough time in, in Canada's history uh, with the 2008-2009 recession, um, even including things like the automotive sector bailout and really the massive investment in, in public infrastructure renewal. Uh, what, I guess, what parallels have you really seen between uh, that type of government intervention in the economy and how the government today is dealing with the pandemic? So I guess the first, a couple of things. First of all, you know, when the pandemic started, we thought the economic impact would be much worse uh, than it was, than the economic impact resulting from the uh, 08, 09 recession. As it turns out, that wasn't the case. That may have been in fact due to the good response of governments at all levels, central banks, but they're very different. Um, I remember, you know, after the lock, lockdown began, I realized that there was still a very vibrant economy working. And I did some work with the C.D. Howe Institute. I'm a fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute, and we did a little bit of work uh, in the first month or so. But the thing that most happened, I think, uh, in this downturn, of course, is the impact on supply chain and our ability to import and export and uh, leave the country. And, and so I guess that would be one thing that certainly we didn't have to deal with. Um, all that being said, um, the 0809 recession was precipitated by a man-made event, uh, you know, the deregulation of banks in the U.S., the subprime mortgage failure, the breakdown of the U.S. financial system, which uh, when, when it first started to unravel, you know, nobody knew where it would end. And um, it was a very disconcerting time. And, and you know, it, by the time I left public office four years later, we were still wrestling with the, the effects of it. And so um, this one's been a little, it's been different. It's been deeper. It's affected less people than we thought, but it's affected some people horribly. Women, it's affected typically, you know, people who work in the service sector more than others. I mean, I was explaining to you earlier, I, you know, I've been busier than I've ever been. You know, we have demand for our services at Macmillan has gone, gone way, way up. And, um, you know, I'm hearing those stories from a lot of places. And, but then on the other hand, you've got, you know, really struggling businesses trying to keep afloat. You've got families who rely on earnings from being waiters, waitresses, that sort of thing. And so uh, the impact has been disproportionate on some. And uh, it, government's going to have to spend some time, I think, in the next couple of years trying to make that right, if, if not whole, certainly try to make it right. And we'll have to see what responses they have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when you were in a finance minister in the, in the recession, now, if you were finance minister today during the pandemic, how would you handle it? 
you know, I think Christia Freeland's done a tremendous job. Um, you know, she, the, the federal government has done everything, in my view, that they should have done. They, they injected, a, they in combination with the Bank of Canada, with, you know, federal uh, governments and central banks in other countries have injected huge amounts of money into the economy to keep it going. Um, it has run up our deficit and our debt. They're going to have to come to terms with that eventually. But, you know, once the economy is back into growth, um, it, just with relatively modest restraint, I think that uh, they can get things back into better shape and good shape pretty quickly. There's very little I can find at fault with, uh, certainly with the federal government. I think they've done uh, a good deal. I know it's, I know the, uh, when we open the border is a very contentious issue with some people right now. Again, the targets they're shooting for, I think are appropriate. Um, the Delta variant is something we should not take for granted. Um, and, um, you know, hopefully in the, in the coming three or four weeks, the border will start to open more again. And again, I know that many businesses and individuals have been, individuals have been separated from their families and businesses not able to, uh, maximize their potential, but, um, caution in my view, given what we still don't know about the virus and the variants, I think is the order of the day. And, uh. It, this will all seem like a bad memory, I think, in a few months. And, uh, um, you know, God willing, the people that have been split, separated from their families and others will be reunited sooner rather than later. But I, I think the prime minister and his government are taking absolutely the right approach to this. And do you see this, the financial implications lasting for a while? You know, some work was done. One of my colleagues, uh, Drew Fagan, who uh, teaches at the Monk School, uh, did a paper last year on, you know, debt and deficit relative to the end of World War II. And we're nowhere near where we were then. And, you know, the impacts of the of the, the war on our, our public finances were huge. And, uh, but they were largely dealt with within five or six years. And, uh, um, you know, again, nobody likes to have the debt <clears throat> deficit that we do. It's not ideal, but Canada's relative position is pretty strong. Um, even when you combine federal and provincial debt and deficits, it's uh, overall we're in pretty good shape. The, the, the challenges, I think the fiscal challenges are, are going to be Alberta and Newfoundland in the coming, in the coming years. Alberta due to the, you know, the secular decline in, in uh, the oil and gas business, uh, Newfoundland due to some you know, the issues, excuse me, issues around muskrat falls and, uh, and other things. So they're going to be, they're going to be hard yet. Um, and, uh, remains to be seen where it's all going to end. But, uh, again, Canada's fiscal situation, while it's certainly taxed right at the moment, it's not <clears throat> dire and it's not without a solution. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I had to ask you, you were a former finance minister. If I didn't ask these questions, uh, I'd be forgetting a whole piece of your uh, experience in, in office. Yeah. But f fast forwarding to your role at Macmillan now, how did that all start? How did you, did you find yourself at Macmillan? Well, um, so when I left politics, it all happened re relatively quickly. Um, <clears throat> uh, the premier I worked for, Dalton McGinty, had decided, decided to retire. I had to make a 
decision as to whether or not I wanted to run for the leadership. I had previously decided that I didn't. I took a couple of days, rethought it, and decided that my original decision was the right one for me. Um, and then <clears throat> you start to <coughs> think about your options. And I was fortunate, a number of, I had a number of approaches from different people, and uh, I wound up uh, taking McMillan as one of them, and I did some work with a major pension fund, a major private equity firm, and uh, a couple of others. So um, I had a, an abundance, and, and all the work other than McMillan eventually wrapped up, and, uh, you know, I've adjusted my, my, my uh, working life to, you know, McMillan. I do a number of corporate boards, including Travelers Insurance, and uh, uh, that keeps me pretty darn occupied. And as I said, I, I do, uh, I serve as the, the national treasurer of the uh, MS Society's uh, Research Foundation. How are you balancing it all? It's been quite easy during the, the pandemic without the commute and without, uh, without all the travel that I, you know, was used to. It's, it's not that difficult. Uh, there are points in time where it gets pretty busy. Um, uh, but frankly, one of the reasons I've decided to step down as chair of the WDBA was that it eats an enormous amount of time. It's a very important project. It's very big. Got a terrific management team there, terrific board, and I just decided that um, things are in pretty good shape. And uh, um, I've been at it for six years now, and it was just time to uh, to let someone else come in. And uh, that remain, remains to be seen who that person will be. But um, you know, new set of eyes, new set of ears as we move into the major construction period of the project. Uh, it's important to have somebody fresh and somebody who wants to make the the time commitment and, and so on that's involved. As you get as you get older you want to spend less time working and more time traveling and doing golf and things like that. Lyndon, you're far too young to appreciate it yet, but uh uh someday you'll know that. I'll be kicking up daisies when that happens, but uh uh, the fact is that uh, there's more to life than politics <laughs> mm -hmm. and work. So you, so you must be a golfer. I am. Yeah, not a very good one, but I am. And uh, I took it up relatively late in life. I, uh, I remember I grew up near Roseland Golf Course. And uh, my mom always used to say to me, why don't you go and golf like your friends, you know, and she'd name off my friends who golfed a lot. And I said, golf's for old men. And I said, I'll take it up when I'm older, which is what I wound up doing, but I should have listened to her. Uh, let that be a lesson. Always listen to your mother. Don't, uh, uh, don't take her, her wisdom for granted. But uh, yes, I do golf. I enjoy it. And uh, uh, I spend a lot of time at it. So mo mothers always know best. In my case, that was certainly true. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Now, would you ever, I guess, consider running again, anything like that? Or are you more, you know, relaxing now? No. Uh, you know, once in a while I'll see something or I'll see a politician, regardless of party, say or do something that sounds absolutely stupid or something that I think is wrong. And I'll think, oh, I could do better than that. But, you know, politics is a vocation, much, not so much a job, it's a vocation. And when you go into it, you have to go into it 
full steam. And that's one of the reasons why back in, in 2012 and early 2013, I didn't run for the leadership of our party. I just, I was kind of by then having worked through the recession and uh, all the various roles I had, I'd had enough. And um, I found it, you know, I found it even difficult, you know, keeping up with my local commitments. And, you know, when, when it gets to that point, you got to say it's time for somebody else. And uh, I made that decision. It's one I've never regretted. Uh, I left the door open at the time to running federally. And uh, I looked very seriously at running in the 2015 election. Uh, but I opted against it again. Uh, I worked on that campaign. I did uh, debate prep with Prime Minister Trudeau. English language debate prep. My French wasn't good enough, but uh, I did English language debate prep with the prime minister. Uh, provided a little bit of advice to the campaign here and there. Uh, another local resident who, or former resident, I don't know if you've had her on your show, is Jody Butts. Her and her husband are, are good friends of mine and uh, obviously very close to the, the Trudeaus. And uh, uh, Jerry actually introduced me to... Uh, a, I'll call him Justin because he was Justin then. And uh, I was one of the early people involved in his uh, his campaign for the party leadership. Wow. Something I didn't know. And yes, Jody was on the show before. She's, yeah. she's fantastic. Yeah, she's great. Grew up in it, Windsor. Yes, yes. What, uh, what got you started into politics in the first place? You know... Um, I, you know, I, my formative years were the, the 1960s, which was a time of student activism, uh, political activism, very different from today. Um, my heroes growing up were people like John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Pierre Trudeau, um, you know, and, and I just, it, it just came to me naturally and, and, uh, <laughs> In 1972, Pierre Trudeau came to Windsor and did a campaign rally at Devonshire Mall. And unbeknownst to my parents, I, uh, I cut school that afternoon, uh, made my way over to the mall, forced my way up to the front of the rope line. And uh, uh, standing there with my little pen and paper, I wanted to get his autograph. And uh, um, he walked right by me. I mean, you know, he couldn't even see me. I was so small compared to all the people around me and people, but uh, Herb Gray saw me and he saw me holding the pen and paper. And he said, quick, he says, write your name and your address and I'll get you an autograph. So I scribbled my name and my address down and handed it to him. It went in his coat pocket. And the next morning I got a phone call uh, from Mr. Gray's campaign headquarters saying, would I like to come in and volunteer on the campaign? And uh, I did. I roasted my dad out of bed. He drove me down and I went in. And as I like to remind Herb of throughout the rest of his life, I never did get my autograph. But uh, that's that is the true story of how I first got involved in uh, in formal pol former politics. Wow. Very, very cool story. But there must have been some some issue in your community that really got you off the edge of your seat. No, it was more, um, you know, I no, it was more a view that politics is something you could do to change the world and you can make people's mm -hmm. lives better. Again, 
I think you really have to understand the time, the, the times when I was growing up and, uh, you know, in the 1960s and, you know, everything from the assassination of President Kennedy to the Vietnam War, the student up, uprest, un, un, up, uprising and unrest, not only in the United States, but in Canada. Um, and I think I read every book that was written on John F. Kennedy after he died. And all this had a very profound impact on me. And, uh, um, you know, and then this goes back to the, the notion of politics as a vocation, not, not a job. It was Paul Martin Sr. that told me that. And that was, in Paul Martin Sr.'s point of view, was always something along the lines that next to the priesthood, it's the, it's the most important vocation. Um, views have probably changed on that in, in more modern times, but it is a vocation. You don't go into it to make money. Uh, you don't go into it with any guarantees of, of success. Um, but you have to be inspired. And, and in my case, it wasn't a specific issue. It wasn't, uh, I remember a few things that impacted, affected my thinking, uh, um, the Vietnam War on the U.S. side. And of course, that impacted Windsor tremendously. Um, the relationship between the two founding cultures in Canada, the French and English, that was a huge issue at the time. The uh, FLQ crisis of 1970, um, just the Canadian, the Canadian experiment, and and uh, how successful it, it seemed to me to be relative to uh, relative to other parts of the world that we could live in peace. Um, and so it, it was it just a whole bunch of things like that, as opposed to you know some people do get motivated by a, uh, an issue and then they realize gee i like this and i like being part of this and and i you know i must say i always like being in the center of the ring um but um it wasn't just one thing it was this whole bunch of things came together i'm sorry lyndon you're on mute yes no it's it interesting to to hear that what in, it really inspired you to to jump in and the uh the story with Pierre Elliott Trudeau and at the rally and you skipping school. Um, very, and, and very you know, interesting. And, and my friends who know me from back then, and I was fortunate, I knew at a very young age that I wanted to be in politics. I didn't know where, I didn't know what position, I didn't know how. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can be involved, but I knew at a very young age. And um, just, I was one of those lucky people that knew very young kind of what his calling was. And this entire episode is uh, we're talking about your career in politics, out of politics. What's next after um, what you're doing now? What are you looking forward to? You know, it's, it's funny. I, I'm, 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 I'm actually reflecting on that because it's, it's now been, uh, it'll be eight years in February since I left politics and I've had a good run and start, you know, I'm, I've decided to move on from being chair of the WDBA. So I'm, kind of reflecting on, you know, what else is there to do? I, I'm certainly not going to retire. Um, I can't envision myself ever fully retiring unless, you know, I'm forced to for health reasons or whatever. But um, uh, so there's more life in me. I was reflecting on the fact today that, uh, you know, the president of the United States is almost 80 years old. The head of state in the United Kingdom is 93 years old. Um, you know, again, 
Uh, and there's a Lawrence Martin had a great piece in the uh, in the Globe today that talked about, you know, how we don't how how we elect far too many inexperienced people and uh, people who haven't got the right training for some of the jobs and he compared you know certain leaders against other leaders he for instance compared you know um Stephen Harper to Jean Chrétien Chrétien had I forget he had held 11 cabinet portfolios before he became prime minister Harper had never really had a job other than as an MP for a few years and and as an economist and uh, you know there, there there's there's going to be work for old guys I think and uh, we can learn a lot from young people there's no question the world's very different but um, so I don't know but I'm open and uh, aside from probably not ever wanting to run for public office again I'm I, I there's probably a lot of different things I'm willing to try. Well, I'm excited to see what's next for you, Dwight, and uh, it's been great seeing your name in the news and all the great things that you're doing with uh, the WDBA here in Windsor and um, all the past things that you've done for our community. So uh, I, I really want to just thank you for, for joining me tonight and sharing some insights into the, the world of politics, what you're doing now, and what it was like when you were in it. So thanks for being on the show, and to those who, who are tuning in, thanks for being here. Thank you, Lyndon, and... Uh... Keep up the good work. Thanks so much. Take care, everyone. Okay.